everyone thank you for taking the time and lending your ears to these various conversations very excited to share all the guests that i have with you this season and in order for this season to be a success i need you guys to help share the word and spread the love of the what makes you tick pod while you're listening please take a moment to like or subscribe to the podcast wherever you are and as always i really appreciate all the help and the support that you guys have given me it's, a, it's such a loving moment now for me. Uh, I remember a, a few years ago when I wrote a book about my, my problems and I remember Dad coming up to me when he read the book in New Zealand. And I, at this stage, I'm what, you know, my, in my 50s. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and, and, and a tear in his eye and he said, I wish I'd had no son. And just to say that was, 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 was with so much love. And it's quite emotional even now telling that story. But just to... I, I just then got it that he got it, and I wish I had have gone to him, but but I didn't. Everyone, welcome back to What Makes You Tick. Very, 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 very happy. Not thick, Brent. Tick. tick. I was <laughs> going to say, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very happy to have my next guest, Brent Pope. Um, Brent and I met in uh, St. Mary's Rugby Club many, many moons ago when I joined the club, and Brent is a former stalwart <laughs> of the club as well. Um, but I'm glad you didn't say we met in Annabelle's. No, no. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember growing up watching Brent and RT and yeah, uh, yeah. doing the punditry, and I was like, Jesus, your man seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, welcome along. Thanks very much. Yeah, good to see you again. A, a great uh, Mary's man like myself. So, yeah. you know, it's always good to to find out what you've been up to over the last few years and you're just oh, telling me you got engaged and yeah, uh, yeah. so the you rest know. is history another yeah, one bites the dust another one bites the dust unfortunately or fortunately I haven't uh, gone down that road but uh, ladies talk about ladies yeah yep. <laughs> yep. um, here we go yeah, <laughs> this exactly. isn't a dating app now exactly, right? exactly. this is actually just us having a chat but, uh, yeah. <laughs> no well, listen welcome along I, I'm delighted to have you I suppose one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you and a couple of things is you're doing some unbelievable mm. work across not only in sport but also in mental health and everything. So I think we'll we'll yeah. there's plenty to get into. But the week that's in it, the World Cup is kicking yeah. off, right? There it would be uh, remiss of me not to open up and have a conversation <laughs> about yeah. rugby. It's something that's so so dear to your life. Before we talk about the World Cup, though, mm. like what what was the what was the reason you got into rugby? How did you get into rugby, and what, how how come it's become such a, a pivotal part of your uh, your DNA? Because you, as a as a young boy growing up in in New Zealand, you couldn't but be immersed in rugby. It, it was impossible not to be because you played two sports. Even though I played a lot of sports at school, you know, as you know, it was mostly for for. for Young boys of my generation and my father's generation, generation before them, it, it was rugby in the winter and, and cricket in, in the summer. Yeah. That's what it was. Despite, you know, you'd just about be laughed out of it if you made the uh, first 11 football side, soccer side, because nobody played soccer, you know. Um, so from about the age of, I suppose, I remember go, I remember my father uh, joined me up to a local Maris club, Maris Brothers Club, a Celtic in New Zealand, where you wore the, the Irish of green. So it was a coincidence that I came back later in life and played in Ireland but uh, I remember knocking on my father's bedroom door when I was about four or five and saying dad you know when are we going to rugby or something he said you know hold off son it's only Tuesday or something the game was on 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 the following Saturday so I just loved I loved rugby from from an early age I first started playing when I was maybe four or five and went through all the grades and then at school and then university and and then provincially and then you know, because it was it was a part of my life, really. Yeah, it's a, it's it's mad, isn't it? Because once you go down one route, it's nearly there's no deviating from it, really. No, 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 no. I mean, especially we, in New Zealand. No, especially in New Zealand. And when you've got to look at it like this, you know, people ask me, you know, I probably played, you know, I probably played in some of the areas uh, that were the greatest of New Zealand rugby. It's changed a bit. We can talk about that. It's changed with professionalism. I don't know whether the professional game has been good for New Zealand rugby. In fact, I see it the other way, but. You know, and that's not just equipment because I didn't get paid to play, but I think there was more of a there was more of a pride involved in those days of wearing a, a, a black jersey and, and representing your country, which I was lucky enough to do. Uh, but I mean, I think just you know playing for the school first fifteen and especially the university years, I loved playing rugby. You know, at first at Canterbury University, and then I went down to Otago, where I spent my years playing for Otago. 
Um, but I really love those days of the comradeship and and the sort of the camaraderie around rugby at yeah. university. You know, it was still a time where you'd have you'd train hard and you'd have a few beers after the game. Well, yeah. a good few beers after the game. But that was that was part that of was it, what it was like. It was it was yeah. play hard and train hard and and play hard. Yeah, you know, that <laughs> in was, that order. Yeah, and that's what made you, you a successful player. You know, at the end of the day, that you that you sort of. I suppose, you know, you, you were parts of two worlds and one part of it was the social side and the other part of it was the training. And, yeah. But I was always a good trainer. I was, my father was a, a New Zealand athlete. He was a, um, a, a triple jumper, New Zealand triple jump champion, and he was a good sprinter. Uh, so, you know, despite having skinny legs, which I still have this day, that when I was playing rugby, they used to say, get, get chicken legs, tackle chicken legs. <laughs> But uh, I used to liken my physique. You know? Well, I used to liken my physique to 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 a carrot. That if you tapped me on the head, I would go into the ground about six inches because my, compared to my shoulders, I could always put. On, I always had big shoulders, like yourself. I mean, I could always do the upper body. In fact, here's a funny story. When 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 I was in, included in the uh, uh, training squad for the 1987 World Cup, they went round the country and they did the fitness testing, which was ahead of its time. So you went into a gym in Wellington somewhere, and they did all these. They had all these fitness tests set up to do. Well, they had to stop me on the pec deck because I got to a hundred or something, and they just. I said I could do this all day long. So I said, "When do you want me to stop?" And they said, "Look, you know, you've done more enough than enough, enough. now." <laughs> and then they they came back with the results, and, and at that stage they said uh, 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 by pound that I was second or third strongest. The upper body rugby player in New Zealand at that stage, that's even considering guys like Steve McDowell and that who had gone away to the, you know, were judo champions and that. But they said, you've got the weak, second weakest legs behind Terry Wright. Well, Terry Wright was like a greyhound winger that was probably only 13 stone. And, you're number and I remember they put the weights on to, to, to do the kind of leg extension. I, I couldn't move it. <laughs> so I knew then, uh, you know. Uh, uh, What's it so? You don't need to have everything, right? Well, you don't succeed. need to have everything. But I was fast. <laughs> yeah. But I also knew I was also a, 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 a good athlete at school and a, and a good 1500 metre runner. I went off to the national champs a couple of occasions for 1500 middle distance running and for cross country. But I knew to train harder than the next guy. Yeah. And I decided where that changed for me big time was the swing around was in 1986. I just. I thought, right, I'm going to prepare myself. I knew the World Cup was coming to New Zealand the following year, and I said, I'm going to be the fittest I can be. Uh, so in those days, I trained like a triathlete, up at five in the morning or whatever, do my gym work. Um, I kind of ahead of my time in, in that regard, and then I would do my, I would go off to work, then I'd do my sprints at lunchtime or whatever, my sprint sessions, and then at, uh, at, at night I'd go out for like a beach run or, or a 10-mile run. So I was really fit. Mm. You know, and consequently it paid off because then I uh, I made the first All Black trials and that against Michael Jones at the time. We uh, still have a, a, a write up in the paper about two youngsters vying for the number seven jersey, and, and and my name was one of those youngsters. The other one was Michael Jones, who of course went on to be one of the greatest, greatest players yeah. of all time, if not the greatest. But uh, so that was my trajectory. Unfortunately, injuries come to pass and kind of I suppose pulled the rug out of my rugby career. Um, and that was very hard to take at the time, and I think that's when actually things started to kind of go wrong for me uh, because I was always someone that had... I was always very anxious, you know? I was always a worrier, and I inherited that from my father. My father was also an anxious man, and I would get unbelievably worried about events or exams or things like that that I shouldn't have been worried about to such an extent that I would end up having panic attacks and... And um, I remember vividly having panic attacks all through my teens, uh, you know, being terrified of what was happening to me. At times I thought I was dying. I would look up to the heavens. I was brought up a religious person in the Catholic faith, but I'd often look up to the heavens and pray that God wasn't taking me, you know. That's how the panic attacks felt for me. Uh, but I masked everything in those years. I mastered. I was the team joker, the class clown, you know. It's, that, it's, it, it's a, that's that, what we do. Yeah, you know. that's it. And and also, you were in an era where that wasn't no acceptable. spoken about or accepted. Yeah, it was just hard enough. No, I thought I was the only person going through this. That was the message. That's the, still the message I give now. I was so alone, Stephen, at that time. You know, even through my teenage years, insecurities and that. I get every teenager has insecurities, but every teenager wasn't suffering from these extreme anxiety attacks and bouts of depression because I say to anybody, if you have anxiety for a long period of time, 
it means. rolls over to a stage where you just get sick of it. You're sick mm. of being feeling. And at times it got to be there was no triggers. Like even now, I can, I can, like even today, I woke up and I was just anxious, you know, and for no reason, no triggers last night or anything like that. Just woke up feeling, you know, anxious about. How do you manage things. it now? Uh, we'll get into that because that's, that's a bit of work, but I just sort okay, of sort yeah. of laid. No, I laid the foundation. So I masked it uh, for years, but like a lot of men, uh, a lot of teenagers at that age, we just sweep uh, issues under the carpet, you know, and hope that they don't come back. Well, boy, mine came back, you know, and it was probably triggered by a number of things at that stage when I probably, you know, I'm still, I still feel a bit of shame, I, even now, uh, after so many ab advocacy years or whatever, I still feel a bit of shame that I couldn't fix it because I always knew, as you would, I always knew the power of, of being physically fit. I always knew that, but you know, I, I, I even though we talk about uh, sort of the social side of it, I wasn't a big drinker. I didn't smoke. My lifestyle was pretty healthy back in the day. I ate right. Uh, you know, I looked after I looked after my physical health really well, and I just thought my mental health would come along with it, but it didn't. And so the frustration or the I suppose that the, the loneliness of going to try to see people and them always being told the same things. You know, Brent, you know, aren't you a fabulous rugby player? You know, we saw you in town with your partner. She's, you know, great looking. Isn't life great and everything like that? You know, you were player of the match last week. They kept taking things back to the physical because they just didn't understand. And I would say to them, but my problem isn't physical. My problem is around anxiety, enjoying the moment, around depression and I need help and I couldn't get help I couldn't get help there was no one to turn to for me you know and and you know I say it now you know at, at, at one stage it very nearly cost me my life because I, I ran out of hope I just so many doors closed off to me so many my my thoughts of of, of going to see someone at, at, at a kind of a professional level that it would be in the front pages of the paper the next day and that I would be put in a straitjacket and put into a psych ward somewhere because that's my that was that was what the mental services that was the picture it painted to me. It yeah, was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Remember mm, that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before your time. But that was my visions of being brave enough to go down to say an A and E department and say, hey, I'm in a bit of trouble now and that's where I feared that I would be put. And people wouldn't understand and wow, you know, to try to to try to go through those Days was very very difficult for me. I I I I, rang, I remember playing a game, a, a provincial game. Now not just a, a club game or whatever, like you know, Leinster Munster game. And I remember coming off coming off the pitch, and the uh, first thing I did, rather before I even got changed, I don't even know to this day whether I I did get changed, but I went to a local payphone with the days before mobile phones, and. Out in the rain, you know, big enough guy at that stage, six foot three, you know, 17, 18 stone, and just rang my father in tears and said, Dad, you've got to come and pick me up. I, I, I can't play rugby anymore. I can't, you know, I wasn't even getting the enjoyment out of that. You know, people didn't understand, either, you know. Mm. I think the first thing they came back with, I think I got a call a few days later saying, you've let everybody down, but I could have been further from the truth. Because, just because I didn't explain to them, I, I, I didn't tell my friends. I just disappeared mm -hmm. because I couldn't cope. And uh, you know, to this day, uh, you know, if somebody had a show and care to me, that I could have opened up and, and, and talked about, and the things would have been easier. But I just felt that I don't want to be a burden to the team. I don't want to be a burden to my parents. I don't want to be a burden to, to anybody. And that's the way that I felt that I was a burden. How old were you? Well. I started having first, my first panic attacks that I hid from from about 14 years of age, and I hid them reasonably well so that people didn't know. Um, nobody knew, really, not only my own family. Um, they knew at times that, you know, I suppose they could see probably signs, but, you know... Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't blame them because I, I never went to them because I just felt alone. I thought, who could I go to? You know, who could I go to? My father loved me, and I loved him. Uh, you know, but you know, he was a, he was a, an old-fashioned father in some regards, and and worked very hard, and three, three, three jobs a day to put food on the table and a roof over your head, and I loved him for that. But I just doesn't, I don't think he would have been the type of person to say until later on, when he just, I'm, I. 
It's, a, it's such a loving moment now for me. Uh, I remember a, a few years ago when I wrote a book about my, my problems and I remember Dad coming up to me when he read the book in New Zealand. And I, at this stage, I'm what, you know, my, in my 50s. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and, and, and a tear in his eye and he said, I wish I'd had no own son. And just to say that was 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 with so much love, mm. and it's quite emotional even now telling that story. But just to, I, I just then got it that he got it, and I wished I had have gone to him, yeah. but but I didn't. So it was the fear that paralyzed you to do yeah, it. Yeah, the fear of being of, of not being normal and being judged, and being, you know, not, being a whinger too. You know, being a being a crybaby, being less of a man, you know, I felt weak. I could I could go around the back of a, of a rugby pavilion and give another player a belt on the nose. I was a an aggressive rugby player, and 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 that was fine. I just couldn't handle the the, the mental side of it. I, you know, and it, it's it's people all know that are listening out there will know what I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that's what I do what I do Stephen because I think we just need to have more understanding about what people are going through not to say not to sit to sit there and say this is what I would do or this is what you should do because it's different for everybody else and I'm not asking anybody to live my life in fact I don't want people to live my life and people might you know take exception to that and say well look hasn't he been on the tv hasn't he had a wonderful life yeah in some regards I have but I would trade all of that to be mentally okay to not have days where I feel hopeless and and especially in those younger days so I, what I why I do what I do now even though it's difficult especially for younger people and especially for, for men just say let's get it out there let's talk about it and, and and let's let's try to move forward positively and 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 that's that's the message so one of the things I'm a big advocate of is asking for help right um, because I was lucky enough to grow up in a world where yeah I had that I had that, I suppose, relationship where I felt comfortable to say to speak to my own man and say, "Here, listen." It was because there was a generational difference, yep. right? But in saying that, I find it sometimes the hardest thing, even though it's, of I course. think, the, the the most important thing to do. I find it the hardest thing because, like that, you create create this. Well, they've got enough on their plate. Exactly. They don't want to be the, no. dealing with my my mess. Uh-huh. It's mine. I need to figure exactly. it out. Exactly, and ultimately, it's when you actually speak to them that they go, "Jesus, why didn't you tell me sooner?" Yeah. Well, I'm telling you now. So, and sometimes I was listening to um, Simon Sinek, who's a great uh, speaker. Mm. But one of the things he said is sometimes it's not about fixing it. No, it's, it's not. Just about listening. Absolutely. It's just being there in the mud with Absolutely. you to be able to go. Okay, go on. Tell me more. Well, that's a great saying. Actually, I might pinch that from rugby time to be in the mud with you because that's what it's all about. And I went back and, and studied to be a psychotherapist, and I'd studied psychology at university, and that, uh, not for any reason to, to, but just for my own journey. And it's exactly about that. And and often parents come to me and they say, "What's the greatest skill when we're talking to teenagers or talking to siblings or family members that might be going through?" I said, just become the world's best listener. Don't try to tell them what you would do or what you should do, unless it's, look, we need to go for help together. But as I said, you're coining your term, like be in the mud with them. Just say, hey, I love you and I support you and I care for you. And if we need to get help, professional help, then I will come with you hand in hand and make that journey with you. That gives people so much confidence to be able to open up. If they know at the end of that line to the Samaritans or to Pieta House or at the end of a conversation to a friend, you're not going to be judged. You're going to be cared for, you're going to be held, and you're going to be embraced for your bravery or courageousness or whatever. Um, Actually, I want to leave those terms behind. I don't want to be seen as brave. People say, oh, you're so brave talking about your mental health. I just want it to be more normal. I want I want every teenager, young person, or every old person, everybody out there to feel a bit like you, that why didn't they make that call earlier? Why didn't they have that conversation earlier rather than later? Why did they go through years or months of pain, of anguish, of despair, of loneliness, of guilt or shame? Because we use all these words around it. When they could have just got onto a phone and found a friend or found a colleague or a family member and just said, hey, I'm not okay. You know, and, and for that person to say, I'm glad you shared this, let's get your help. Mm. You know? Yeah, because I, th- I think for, for some people, they have the facility to go to speak to a yeah, professional, right? Of course. And they have that, I suppose, <clears throat> like 
I went through a bit of a, a really, really challenging period about five or six years ago. My sister said to me, she said, Steve, you make all these different choices in your life. Maybe you mm. need to go and talk to somebody yeah. about why you make those choices. Yeah. Right. And that, exactly. for, that for me was my freedom to go because my my ignorance beforehand was that therapy was a weakness. That was my ignorance, yeah, of course. right? Same that, was, as me. that was my ignorance. That was the way I kind of mm. viewed things. I said, I don't need therapy. Oh, I'll be you're, fine. A man, you're a man's man. You're a big I'll rugby figure it player. Out. And exactly. Everybody would have come to me yep. as a friendship circle to yep. talk Same to me, me, to do all this yep. stuff, right? Yep. And then it got to a point where when my sister said it to me, that was the catalyst for me to go, do you know what? She's right. Mm. And I'd never done it before. But what I, what mm. I did was I went to my GP had a chat with my GP. I said, I, I need I need help. Yeah. And he gave me two names. I yeah. rang one person, they never rang yeah. me back. I rang another person, they rang me back, right? Yeah. And then I went into the world where, like with training in the gym, mm. I'm not going to get strong in the morning. No, exactly. From doing a weight session. Yeah. It's going to take a process. No, and people need to know that. And so I, I kind of approached it going, okay, this is a process. I need to... Yes. Need to go through it, yep. whether I liked it or not. Now there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations. There was a lot of tears. Of there was a lot of um, like challenges. There mm. was all these things that, like, I could see myself reacting. But two years later, I turned around and I said, "I think, I think we're done, aren't we?" And mm. she said, "Yeah, we are." Yeah, and people have to realize that people but are looking I was for lucky the quick it was fix. Two years. No, right? but, oh, you're but, lucky. but like I, some I, people will, and sometimes I look at it and I go, "Okay, maybe I should go back." Yeah, um, but you, at least you know, you know that you have the strength. For me, I just know that I'm saddled with this for life. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I'm a miserable person to be around. No. I'm not. Uh, and I'm a good friend, and I, I'd like to think that I'm somebody that people can, can share things with. And that, But I know, uh, like you, that I know that if I get into trouble, then I have certain numbers on my speed dial or whatever, and one of them is a therapist and one of them is a psychologist, whatever, because... I need to ring them and say, hey, look, I think I need another series of appointments. But people need to know out there that are listening to this. It is a process, and you need to find the right person for you too. It's not just about it's not just about going to the first psychotherapist you can book in, because that may well be a failure. I think I had to try five or six bef before I, I, I found the right mix for me that I felt comfortable talking to. And then you get to a stage where actually... I like. I enjoyed going along on a Wednesday night for my hour of venting, you know. That yeah. you know, so yeah, you could just sit there and just say, oh, you know, this has <laughs> been miserable and this has been that, and and that's when I really picked up that the best therapists just listen and they guide you through what you need to talk about and they give you a bit of homework that you go away and just think about things differently. And I'm not talking about homework. You go down and write a fifty-page essay. No. no. No, just say, hey, maybe maybe we look at things a little bit differently. Yeah. And the CBT side of that, you know. But, um, you know, people need to understand that's a good thing. I mean, uh, Americans have probably over-embraced the kind of therapist <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for everything. But certainly, certainly, you're right, the first step is that. And it's not an easy step to make. And, I mean, just taking one aspect of mental health that's a real worry for me is, is loneliness is a killer for older people. Loneliness. Uh, people, you know, we we've come some way to addressing that in COVID. Actually, now we've just gone back to our old ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. we at least called into neighbours and elderly neighbours, especially in the rural sector in COVID, and maybe said, "Look, do you need groceries?" Sometimes all those people need to do is talk to someone. I remember an elderly neighbour who I was very close to, and she passed away unfortunately during COVID. Uh, burial across the road, and she used to say to me, Brent. She said, the reason I go down to the butchers or used to go down to the butchers or the, or the, the old-fashioned supermarket, she said, just to talk to someone. She said, that was it. And she said, now we go down and, and we're whisked out the kind of quick pay and people don't have time for people anymore. Yeah. Which everything is... The, the interaction with people is becoming less and less. Isn't less it? and less. And, and you see it in technology, you see it in... The, but I, I think it's going to come cyclical, right? Because there's all, well, this, I hope, I hope there's all this fake stuff that's out there, right? Mm. That you won't actually trust somebody unless you're with them in person. Like, I think that'll be become the point where eventually it'll become super cyclical where we'll need to engage with e each other because people need people. Like, human well, interaction is... Thing, it's the most important thing you can do. Yeah. And I mean, funny enough, on that, um, the, 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 the longest psychological study, I think, was, is, is, it's very interesting, actually. Uh, and they took, I think, they took 
90 men from Boston years ago, two or three generations ago, and from different walks of life. You know, some of them were some of them were were kind of, I suppose, homeless and and out of orphanages. Others were from Ivy League schools or whatever. And they tracked they tracked their physical health and their mental health through generations. And they asked them at certain ages what they think would make them happy. And of course, they got different answers at different stages. Mm-hmm. But the one thing all of them had in common was what makes them most happy later in life is the relationships that they've built. Nothing about money, nothing about having the, the best house on the hill. It was all about friends and family and the relationships they could be proud of. So when people strive for happiness through having, you know, having things, I look at it differently. I, I, I think happiness comes you know, from doing something you're proud of and from giving back to, to, to family, community, country, you know. So I would like to think that, yes, we're going to come back to those raw values of what friendship really means or what the journey means in life, and rather than get sumped up in, in, in technology and rushing to go everywhere. You know? Material. Actually, speaking about being proud of something, so I think it's a nice segue into what you're doing and the work you're doing with Samaritans. Segway, I love that word. It's yeah, a modern, that's it's a, a gener- your generation word. <laughs> you know, I don't know what we said before segway. Is what we're surfboard <laughs> nice link, into it. it? <laughs> surfboard into it or skateboard into yeah, it. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's good because... Like, yeah. So the work, can you maybe just talk to me about the work you're doing with Samaritans and the Elephant in the Room project? Well, I'd, I've been an advocate for, for you know, once, once I, 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 I suppose once the shop doors was open and people knew about my life you know once they knew about life once i try and i still i still Actually, what was that sorry what was that like to, to very to, very to, very to very that? difficult because it was it was on air and i i ryan tubbity uh, interviewed me i think before well before the late late he was a young broadcaster in, in rt and he i came back from new york and I, I that summer i just felt new york because I, in some ways I come to Ireland, people think it was come to, to play rugby. No, that was just a kind of excuse. I had to get away, you know. I wasn't in a good position. I'd been suicidal, let's face facts. I'd had probably what you'd term now as an emotional breakdown. And I just needed to, st- part of the advice, even from the council at that stage when I got professional help, was, Brent, you need to get away from this environment. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on in my life then. There was a lot of disappointments out in rugby about r- broken relationships, about all these things that were just raining down on me every day. And I just couldn't cope. So the first step was, look, I need a bit of fresh air here. I need to get to, to, to somewhere where people don't know me, where I won't be judged, and where I can maybe talk more openly to somebody because they wouldn't have known me and they wouldn't have said the same thing. Look, you know, weren't you player of the match last week? Aren't you, you know, aren't you rugby player of the year? You know, what what could make you more happier? But that didn't bring me any happiness. But so I came out and then, and then the mistake I made was I thought, okay, I, I don't need, I, I'm okay now and I don't need to keep seeing the therapist after about, you know, I think about, about two year period. So I said, okay, I'll go up to New York and I'll spend a, a few months in there. I'll rent an apartment, and I love movies, and I love Broadway, and I love those sorts of Central Park, you know, just throwing a frisbee in that. It was the most loneliest time of my life. I, I and then I started to see the, the the triggers for me, and started to see the symptoms. I I I, be, I went very introverted, which is what I tend to do. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm in this fantastic city, I didn't want to see anybody. I become sort of socially recluse. I was thinking, I'm paying all this money for accommodation, and I'm I'm, I'm not in a good I'm not in a good space. But I knew it. That was the difference. I knew it. Okay. So I said, look, I've got to get back to Ireland to get the help. I've got to get on the speed dial again and ring my therapist and say, look, I've got to fly back to, to to Ireland because I'm not in a good place. So that's what I did. But on the same day, I'd agreed to a bit like here. I'd agreed to come in and do a, 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 a Ryan radio show about the rugby, about the upcoming season. And he just took one look at me and he said, Brent, there's something wrong with you. He said, I just, I know you a while now. And he said, there's just something wrong. Bang, he just got me in one of those vulnerable moments that I broke down live on radio. I, I think I probably started crying and I just said, look, things are not well with me, you know. And, and my whole, what I call life's dirty little secrets came out again, 
you know. But the, the, there was a difference this time, Stephen, in the sense that it just didn't come out to people that I wanted to share it with. Mm. It came out to everybody in Ireland, or everybody that was listening. And I, without a word of a lie, I went round the back of RT Studios after that, after that uh, interview and I just put my hands on my head and I just thought, what have I done? You know, they, the, the Irish won't accept me. They won't accept the, uh, 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 an ex-rugby player now on the panel, you know, talking about rugby. That's mentally weak. I'll be seen again. It, it, transfer, it tra- transported me back to that time where, you know, this guy's not a real man. Mm-hmm. You know, a real man wouldn't be airing his dirty laundry, as I called it. Mm-hmm. You know, airing all his shame and his guilt and that. Just get over it. Man up, toughen up, harden up. All these things came back to me. You know, why couldn't I cope like other teammates cope? Why couldn't I, you know, I could go down to the gym and lift weights all day long, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have a, I I couldn't repair myself without help. But so then I thought about, the first thing was, well, well, I've got to go and start my life again somewhere else, you know, because I won't be accepted. To run again. again. But then I think... Brian Tuberty called me back and I was, I remember where I, I don't know why, why I remember that I was in Tesco's and he rang me back and he said, Brent, he said, we've never seen anything like it on a show. He said, the number of red lights that come up, that people have just come on, support, support especially for men, uh, they just come back and said, oh my God, you know, I'm going through the very same thing and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, so at that stage I was called brave. You know, and 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 I don't I don't see it that way. I I just I just got caught in a you know it's like that U two song stuck in the moment and I can't get out of it. Yeah. And that's just how I felt. I got me in a vulnerable stage where my my life's problems just spewed out, and uh, very very difficult because I felt wherever I went, someone was judging me. Mm. I felt everybody that so looked at me. There's a new pressure. There's a new pressure then. Yeah. I'm going down to the rugby club and, and people are looking at me and saying, did they hear the interview or not? Did they you know they're going to treat me any differently? Um, and some people did. Did they? Yes, they did, because I, I think probably because it, it scraped at something in their own lives, mm. and they didn't want to admit it themselves. And they would often be the people that contacted me years later and said, Brent, you know, I, was, I, I, was just, I was just stuck where you were a couple of years before. I didn't, I didn't feel ready to address the issues. So since that time, I vowed, I suppose, nothing to do with an ego because when you take, you've got to take your ego out of anything you do when you're talking about mental health. It's not like saying, you know, I'm the greatest guy around. You know, look at Brent Pope and this, that, now the no. It's nothing to do with ego. It's, it's to, it's to leave the message behind that we all, you know, it's a, I know it's a cliche used, but it sums it up best for me. You know that that. It's okay not to feel okay sometimes. We get that wrong because people will say it's it's not okay to be okay sometimes. But that's different. That's the way you think about it. It's not okay to feel not okay sometimes, to feel that way. That's normal. It's okay to feel okay. Yeah. yeah. Or, no, sorry, it's, it's, it's okay to, not to, to not feel, feel okay, okay. Yeah. and that's normal. But if it, yeah. becomes, if it becomes chronic and if it becomes a, a situation that's with you for a few weeks, then it's absolutely okay to ask for help. And that's the message, and that's as simple as it will always be. So the elephant in the room is, I say to everybody, you know, I could say to everybody in this office, you know, what's your elephant? And everybody has an elephant, as I see it, and that elephant represents something that they're vulnerable, something they don't want to talk about. Because if you mention the elephant in the room to someone, they go, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about that. You know, whether it's racism, whether it's bullying, whether it's gender issues, whether it's finance, whether whether it's whatever it is that negatively affects your mental wellness, that is your elephant. So I'm just asking people to, hey, you know, try sharing the elephant with somebody. Try sharing what your worries are rather than letting it fester, letting it building up. What I said before, pushing it under the carpet to come back and haunt you a later day. Mm. You know why can't somebody work in a, in, in a, in a, into a sporting organisation or a, or a, a, a business and knock on the door and say to the manager or to the team coach or to the principal or to friends, hey, you know you probably noticed I've been a bit down or whatever or I've been a bit I haven't been my old self, um, and you know it's just because something's going on at home or something or something I, I and for that person to say hey. Thanks for sharing that with us. Do you, do you need help or can we help you? And for that person to say, I'm okay. I, I, I'll be back to work or I'll be back to the team in, in a few weeks. But just so that somebody understands. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm. it's interesting you say that because there's obviously 
creating that freedom for somebody to share, right? But there's also mm. teaching people how to listen. You did min mention Absolutely. earlier how important it is to listen, especially as a parent. Hmm. But as a person, as a friend, there's like it's a skill. It Absolute is a skill, skill to be able to let somebody talk, to let them share their their <laughs> their their mind. People are probably laughing because I've been badgering away at you for the last oh, thirty minutes. I've but been practicing my skill. Yeah. No, no, no. But I, I like I'm listening to you, and I'm there's so many things that you said that resonate, but also it's it's so focused on the person because you've you've experienced so much of that you've experienced you've mm. gone through and like you're dead right it, it's not about being brave it's just making it normal to be able to talk like we're 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 when it comes to um the modern man right mm. yeah if you look at it if you want to invert the yeah. it, right the modern man now is mm. a little bit more including include well, with the with, ho hopefully with, with yeah. their with their emotions emotions right i was speaking to kaylin Darris on the pod a couple of months back <laughs> right but kaylin said he said yes well he's one, very well, he's, well, he's qualified or yeah. his parents were psychologists. yes well he's one of our ambassadors for elephant in the room well so yeah. kaylin turned around and he says um carl rogers who's a famous yeah, yeah. Uh, he probably said it's like a therapist what, yeah. what's 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 personal is universal yeah true and, and by sharing it you'll actually find that you're not on your own and in doing that, then you can grow a bit of strength. Exactly, you know? and, and and you know you know even from a from a from a, a dressing room rugby, yeah. the greatest thing you can do sometimes is if you share your vulnerability, then other people will share theirs back because they don't feel so judged, they don't feel so so. I give people permission when I tell my story. I give people permission to say, "Hey, you know, that's how I felt, or that's how I feel," and if it's okay for him to do it at a level above, then it's okay for me yeah. to talk to a family member or something. That's all we're trying to do. But by sharing that vulnerability, they will share it back. Nine times out of ten, if you listen to someone and they and you start by saying, hey, you know, don't worry, I feel like that sometimes as well, yeah. that gives so much empowerment to someone to say, okay, I'm not alone. You know, that Stephen feels it, that Brent feels it, that my yeah. husband feels it. You know, that so so if you take that loneliness, that's why I said loneliness has been killed. I just didn't mean, in a sense, somebody sitting down in a in a in a place by themselves. I meant the loneliness of 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 dealing with something yourself and feeling there's no help out there. So the elephant becomes what I wanted to become is a symbol of confidence. So if somebody comes into workplace and they see an elephant there in the foyer and it's got it comes with a, a lovely commitment plaque that says whatever business or whatever sporting club is committed to talking about conversations that affect our mental health, at least you know someone at some level has put a bit of thought into caring. For those people that suffer in silence, maybe it gives them just an ounce of confidence to be able to go into that room and say, hey, you know, I'm in a place where I can be held and cared for. And it's just a start, Stephen, yeah. it's just a start. I'm not, I'm not expecting the elephant in the room. Actually, no, I am. I'm expecting the elephant in the room to go to all over the world that there's some representation of an element. I was just talking to the construction industry there, and I said, I'd love to go past the construction sidings and see a big elephant painted on the side of it just says, this is a, 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 a place of mental health positivity or whatever so that those workers coming into work each day it's not all about hard hats it's not all about uh tools it's about looking after their mental health as well and what about know? county councils like walking absolutely in, going into the into absolutely and seeing yeah, that elephant. An elephant yeah and that we're welcoming you to share and be your be your 100 percent self and talk to us people get it yeah. people get young people get it mm. i'm not so sure at the moment talking to businesses and that you know some i i I addressed some certain businesses there that are very so probably macho, you know, in, in a sense that they're mainly male employees. And I said, what are you so scared of? What are you so scared of? And and, and CEO at least was honest enough to say, Brent, we're scared of Pan opening Pandora's box, you know. And I said, don't be, you know. But by doing that, you'll actually become better. But that's what I mean. You know? If people can just realise that as a as as a as a as a, as and the same CEO said, in your, in, your, in your advice, what should I do? And I said, the most powerful thing you could do, and I'm not expecting you to do it, I said, but, but you asked me my advice. The most powerful thing you could do is go down at the start of a year or something like that and address all your staff and say, hey, you know, I'm not without problems in my own life. 
start off by sharing that vulnerability and say, look, you know, but what I want to do is create a working environment where people can feel that they can talk to someone else. It doesn't have to be with me. It doesn't have to be, with, but it needs to be with someone. And also the fact is, take it from me now that you won't be judged ever in this company. If you come to someone and say, look, okay, I need a couple of days off work or something, because that way it generates care and and a feeling of being held, and that will increase productivity and increase Passion. work wellness. Yeah. So if people want to get to know more about elephant in the room where do they go what they can they go do? on the website uh we're just we're, you know they, they we're wanting com- companies to 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 have their own elephants done and that's where we tie in with the samaritan because they are our charity partner for this year um but uh so so all the all the profits from the elephants go to the samaritans but i want this to grow over the next couple of years it's not just a fundraising and it's awareness campaign that I want the elephants to continue to grow that, you know, we've, we've teamed up with uh, Lunchbag, for instance, who are a, a, a company that distribute nutritional lunches to, um, uh, to the schools or whatever, and they're going to go out with an elephant in the room bag with, you know, what it means to be a better friend. Probably. And that'll go out to a million kids in a month, a million kids. So a million kids will open their lunch and see this elephant in the room bag and it'll say something like, if you see someone alone at school and it's their first day, go over and be a friend. You know, smile to someone, shake someone's hand. It's not about, it's just about the building blocks of mental mental health. So we're going to further that on with buddy benches, elephant buddy benches. But primarily I'm, I'm asking companies to become market leaders. You know, don't come back to me all the time and say, oh, we'll put a new gym in the, in, in, in the company or we'll put bean bags in the, in, the, in the common room. No, that's not enough to address it. So I'm asking companies out there that, that are prepared to, to, to make a stand and have an elephant in their, in, their, in their foyer or in their boardroom or something that represents where they're wanting to go with mental health awareness. That's all I can ask. I think it'd be so powerful if you were walking into a, a business yeah. to see that. Absolutely. Knowing that you're starting your, you're starting your journey and you automatically see that. And then well, see, you, you get can, it. You can connect it. You, you know? get it because I, 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 against that background, I just we we Corn Market were one of the original sponsors. I do a bit of work for them, a mental health kind of, I suppose, ambassador or whatever. But when I was in there, I was in there on inductee day, and a lot of Corn Market have a lot of employees from different areas. So I was in this room. The, the elephant was in there, <laughs> and there was a number of uh, Brazilians in there. There was uh, 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 people from all around the world were in this room, including a couple of people from Ireland. And they all went over, and I kept quiet, and they all went over and looked at the elephant, looked at the plaque. And I just turned to one of the girls and said, oh, what's, what's, what's all that elephant about? You know, they didn't know. I didn't anything to do with it. And they said, it's brilliant. It's just saying that, you know, if we come to work for a core market or something like that, you know, our mental health will be cared for or something. And I said, you got it. And everybody in that room, yes, they're of a certain age, they got it. They got what the elephant uh, symbolised. And I said, would that give you more confidence to speak? And they said, absolutely. And I thought, job done. You know, if that's, if one person, if one person comes in on day one that's a bit nervous and they've maybe had some mental health difficulty or whatever, they come in and they see an elephant there and they said, okay, that's what I said. They know that someone at any level, doesn't have to be CEO, but someone at some level has thought enough about people's mental health in that space to give them more confidence. And it's not about being brave. It's not about being courageous. It's about actually having the confidence to say, "Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling too well. The last couple of weeks or something. I need help, and and, and I, I, I feel that I'm confident enough to go and talk about it and not be judged. See, the problem with people going onto these websites is this: is they feel still out there, despite what companies will tell you. They put all this money into websites and that, and they're fantastic. They look fantastic, wellness stuff and that. People don't want to go on because they don't feel it's confidential. They feel that somewhere up the level, somebody is looking down there and saying, oh, I see Stephen Bradshaw was on and uh, he was up for promotion there, but oh, I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. he's got mental health issues. You know, that's what they fear, whether that happens or not. Yeah, the perception of it. The perception of it. Mm. And that's the, that's the problem with, with, with people, with businesses coming to me all the time. And I, I, I turn around and say, well, how many people use that site? Because we know how many use the likes of the Samaritans be at house, and it's thousands. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, the, 
the the message you met you spoke about earlier on is asking for help mm. if you were to leave a message behind is that the one that you would share is that or like um i ask everybody when when they're on the pod and it's an interesting one right because it gets you yeah. thinking so you're, you're you're creating this billboard you're walking past yeah. it you've three seconds yeah. you're driving past like what's the message that you're trying to sh- share with the world now the message the message is that I never want to talk about legacy, but you know, I'm at an age now where by you do think about it. You know, you do think about. You know, I've lost a number of friends over the last few years, sadly, through you know taking their own lives or through pancreatic cancer or these things. And and you do you do come to an age where you face your mortality and you start thinking something. Something I shared with a few people there the other day at the opening of the Elephant the Room. I said something. Some someone. I don't even know who said it to me, but years ago they said, "Look, find happiness." I was always seeking what would make me happy. Right? I was always thinking, I, "I'm not happy." And I, I, you know, did I try to seek it in sport? Did I try to seek it in relationships? Did I try to seek it everywhere? And and for some reason, for some reason, that's is difficult for people like me. It's difficult to, to, to feel happy. And that, and someone said to me, you know, get that happiness by doing something you're proud of, mm-hmm. you know? And I got that because I can look back and say, I can look back and say what I'm most proud of in my life, and it's nothing to do with the rugby ball. What I'm most proud of is if somebody comes up, and it's quite emotional for me, I suppose, if somebody comes up to me on the street or when I'm out for a walk or they stop their car, the people do, and they put out their hand and they just say, Brent, you know, thanks for all that you do or you you or you set about change in my life or you set about change in a family member's life. Um, and a few years ago, I was my brother came over um, to visit me uh, and we were going off to the races and um, we were down in Houston Station and my, my brother's not a very good fighter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, whereas I probably was quite handy, uh, and I saw this heavily tattooed, gangsterish-looking guy looking over at me, and I thought, "There's going to be trouble." We're in trouble here. No, okay. I, you know, yes, I was guilty as anybody. I, I'm, ju- I'm judging. He was a big guy too. It wasn't like you know. So I tucked my brother in, and I said, "He's coming over," and I said, "There might be trouble, Mark," because I—that's uh, my brother's name—because I didn't, I, you know, I didn't. I didn't know I, that he even knew or something. I just, you know, I just had it in my mind that this guy was approaching and I didn't, you know, want him in the firing line. Because in those days I was on TV and not everybody's going to like you on TV. Yeah. You know, yeah. people yeah. are going to, people are going to, haters are haters, Taylor Swift said or whatever. That, but haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. But it shows you, how, shows you how much I follow Taylor Swift. But anyway, the story is that he was approaching me or something, so my uh, my brother had gone off somewhere else, and he came over to me and thought, oh, no, you know, is there going to be trouble? And he said, Brent, he said, I just want to say, he said, that if I ever had a chance to meet you, he said, I, t- I told my wife, he said, if I ever had a chance to meet you, just to tell you that you are loved in my house. And he said, my wife, then my wife now, but she, he said, she was my partner a few years ago, went and heard you speak, and she needed help, and she went out the next day and got help, and she's fine. And he said... You are welcome in our in our home anytime, and just to know you're loved, you know. And I, and he said, "Can I hug you?" And I thought, <laughs> you know, you're it ready. brought me to tears. Yeah. And I thought, how can anything I do in my life equal that? Mm. You know, how can anything I do? So my life is about giving back. And if one person hears this podcast, or one person sees an elephant, or one person hears me speak, or one person gets the help that they need and lead wonderful, happy lives. That is my legacy. Not scoring a try in a, in a mind you, you know, yeah. always dreams of scoring a World Cup winning try, something in the corner and that. But you know, but other than that, this is more important work that I do. I think you're you're dead right. I think you put into really good words there in that rugby is a facilitator. Yeah, it's not life. No, right. It's a great thing to be part of sport. Music, yeah, anything, anything. Like that, it's great yeah, to be part of. Yeah. But if you're proud of what you're yeah. doing, if you're a good if you're person, proud, if you're, you're a good person, you're giving it your best. Yeah. You can't like. There's no more that you can do. And but even from a sporting thing, how powerful is that? And you know, all the best team talks I ever had, they pulled at your heartstrings. Mm. They didn't pull at your physical strings. No. They didn't pull out. They didn't say, you know, Stephen, you're a big strong guy or something. Go out and do. What they did was. You've got to have pride in the jersey. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And even the All Blacks went back a few years ago when they had the disappointments of the World Cup and they went back to, you know, that a better person makes a better All Black. And I get that. Yeah. You know, a better person all around makes a better player. Well, interesting you say that because in Andy Farrell's yep. first start or bringing the team yep. together. Family a and ago, everything. It was like, look at yourself as an eight-year-old boy. Exactly. We got a psychologist in and he goes, imagine that kid playing for Ireland. Yeah. Would you be proud of yourself? That's it. That's it. And then if you look at it and put it into that perspective, yep. then you're automatically starting with pride. You're automatically going. And then it's about pride is so how, powerful. How, how good can I be? Yeah. Let's follow the process. That's it. And like t- to that point then, because I think you have all these modern men, big men, yeah. huge men who are about to embark on yeah. this huge, huge competition. Like there's going to be pressures from all over. Absolutely. Like you see what's happening with England. She was happening all over. Or not happening. Yeah, or not <laughs> happening. But but like these are, there's there's going to be um, people need to remember this is just a game. Yeah. Right. It's not life. Um, Try telling that to the French. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 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 True. Yeah. But what, what's your take on the World Cup? What's your, what's well, your, what's unfortunate. Your view on it? And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, whatever way you look at it. You know, two of the best teams are going to go out the quarterfinal. You know, I mean, they made a, a, a horse's ass out of the draw. You know, now I get where they they probably didn't think things were going to change dramatically over the four years, so they went with the draw as as it was at the end of the 2019, where Japan were ranked fourth or fifth or whatever, and Ireland were down because they hadn't got out of the out of the quarterfinals. You know, but. Um, I think it's it, it'll be one of four teams. Now you know you can say that. I might talk about sitting on the fence here, but uh, it'll any, be any. it'll be France, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, or Ireland. Um, There's no no Argentina coming through now. There'll be a couple of shocks. Yeah. And and yes, they will get to the semi final because on the other side of the draw, I can see Argentina or Fiji even uh, getting. But I don't think though though that side of the draw will get, go past. I don't think they'll get to a final. Uh, so I think that actually, you know, the final could be two teams from the same side of the draw yeah. now. Yeah. When you talk about Ireland, uh, it's as simple as this. Either if they get through the quarterfinal, they can win it. Mm-hmm. But do they go out at the quarterfinal? Yeah. Because who do you want to play? I mean, their reward either way is right. either France or New Zealand. Now, we're not going to know more about that until Friday night's game because that is France-New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So if France wallop New Zealand, wallop them, I mean, give them a hiding like South Africa did, if they wallop them then, then Ireland will obviously go after trying to win that pool because they'll want to play the All Blacks. What if the All Blacks turn around and wallop the French? Now, it's probably not going to happen, but stranger things have happened. I didn't think South Africa would beat New Zealand up a couple of weeks ago, yeah. I must admit. So things change. So suddenly from New Zealand being in a really good place, suddenly throw that in 24 hours to not being a good place. I still think South Africa's physicality is a real danger. Yeah. Because they can... Stra- the, Ireland and New Zealand play similar ways, you know, in the sense that they try to speed the game up, as we know. So it's a case of going around the South Africans. They're not going to go through them. But the way that South Africa just bullied New Zealand the other day is the way that South Africa will approach Ireland. Yeah, it was like men against boys. Men against boys. And that is the worry. And, uh, you know, forget about the seven the seven subs or whatever, you know, uh, you know, if they have the ability to bring on big men, well, that's what they're going to do. You know, and uh, I suppose you know the what, New Zealand and, and Ireland have got to come up with a game plan. I think Ireland have the game plan to do it, but New Zealand's have had to go and have a quick turnaround and think about how they're playing because they'll face the same in France. I think if you look at it as well, the, the talk of the months of players going to play with South Africa, they know the call, yeah. all this stuff. Oh, I think that's all no. baloney, to be honest no. with you, because the guys are too smart, they're too yeah. clever, no, they're too no, well planned. That old acorn, but, you know, but, they know the I moves. Love, I would love to see another Japan. Another kind yeah, of yeah. I think that'll team. be Fiji. I, I think. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Why do you think that? After the, I just after think I think Fiji are fantastic, and they have all those things we talked about that you need. You know, they have the pride and bucket loads. Yeah. They have players now that are fit because the Fijians would always give it a great old wallop for sixty minutes. I yeah. mean, nobody enjoyed playing Fiji. I played Fiji plenty of times, and in the islands where, geez, they're just about unbeatable. Yeah. 
but they're all playing Super Rugby now. They're all play, They're all mainstay. Not only are they are they bit players in the in the in the French teams. They they're quite often the the French team's best player. Yeah. yeah. You know, you see these the these Fijian players. I think they'll upset Wales, and I think they'll get through to the quarter final. And I think actually, given to a quarter final, you'd fancy them against you know England or Argentina. These you know on on a good day. Uh, so they could get, they could go. I don't think Japan, Japan have sadly not hit form. They could do something about it. Whether or not Jamie Joseph, I played with Jamie, and a good friend. Whether or not he's got something up his sleeve, but yeah. it's going to have to be something pretty big because their 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 form isn't great. So I think it'll come down to those quarterfinal matches for Ireland. Is it against South Africa or is it against France? Sorry, or is it against New Zealand? You see. I've got a theory that I might be proved wrong on Friday night. I've got a theory that pressure will have a lot to play in the French performance because it's hard to win a World Cup in your own country because you're under the microscope. You know, when they go to uh, they go to the shop... Well, nothing else front, is accepted. No, nothing else right. is accepted. The French have to win it. Mm-hmm. They've been the best World Cup team over all the history. If you look at results, they've just been the one nation really, that's been ever-present and never won it. So the pressure on those players from, you know, I remember hearing stories of, of, of people on tours out to New Zealand sort of getting attacked by old ladies with umbrellas saying that the line-outs were all wrong. You know, everybody's going to have an opinion. The French, the French really can't win well enough on Friday night. You know, whatever points they put up, People will come back and say, well, you weren't as good as South Africa. You know, maybe they win 25-15 or they lose or something. And then if they lose, if they lose, they'll still get out of their pool. But, yeah. man, the pressure will just be right that. Then if they lose someone like DuPont. Yeah. After losing Antimac, if they lose DuPont, then... And Ireland, Ireland that's, that's, <laughs> what, that's what will affect Ireland the most. Once we drop down through, you know, we've already seen the impact that Healy... Uh, has because we just assumed that he'd be going to the World Cup and he'd be that guy that they bring in, you know, but their own bomb squad. I mean, if Ireland were to lose a few key players and that would be tight head prop, scrum half, um, Johnny Sexton or whatever, you know, if they were to lose a few of those key positions through injury, would they be good enough to face a, a fully foot French All Black side quarterfinal? I don't know. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge about the squad and depth. That's yep. why South Africa are so good yep. because they've got so many guys to bring on and so many guys yep. to fulfil those roles. I think whatever is going to happen is going to set up to be an unbelievable yep. tournament. I'm getting to the South Africa game, which is great. I know you're getting to a couple of games as well. Oh, I'm getting to the cheaper, but, uh, the, 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 the cheap seats. But, but, but it's going to yeah. be amazing. It's going to be a great, great atmosphere. And I think back to the point about sport, it's going to bring so many people together. It's going to have an unbelievable impact, I think, in the year. A lot of people have been... Uh, talking to me about it, um, I know when we did a bit of research before, it's the most anticipated sporting event of the year. So let's hope. Well, the first it, game is going to be it. the biggest uh, view, viewership of any rugby match the world has ever seen: France, New Zealand. You know, so you know the the, the, the you know, but World Cups are just different. Again, Everybody wants a World Cup. Yeah. You know, you you can have all the other medals. Johnny Sexton can have Player of the Year, European Player of the Year, all these things. What they want, this Irish team want, and what. They they deserve, they deserve a World Cup. Yeah, and I'll be delighted for them. So well, it's you know. the one to it's it's the best the be, the most well prepared team we've ever had. Yeah, and it's in fairness to them, the performances that they're putting in, they feel like they it feels like they're building again. So yeah. it's their knows, time. Who knows? It's it, it's 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 their time. But again, it goes time. back to that 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 moment when they're playing. They're going to have to bring on pride. They're going to bring that emotion through because at the end of the day, you can't do it every week. But that'll mm. be one of the games in the quarterfinal to get there. Is the one that they'll probably need to rely but on. But if you know. go, to, if you, if you, I know, I know, it's not logical, and sport is never logical. But if you go through Ireland's starting fifteen, and you're playing other nations in the world, it's something I always used to do as a coach. And if you go through those players and say, who would I automatically select from the other team to play? I, I, I team. Years ago, you'd have gone through an All Black and Ireland team playing at a World Cup, and you'd say, "Okay, well, we take eleven or twelve All Blacks, and we put three Irish players, O'Driscoll, O'Connell, in the team to make the perfect kind of combination team." You're looking at a stage where Irish rugby is so strong. If they were to sit down with New, with New Zealand, how many New Zealanders would make this Irish team? So the point being that that Ireland should be able to go out with 
confidence that in a neutral playing venue like France, unless it's against France, then logistically they should win. They should win matches. Because just because I think they've got the, the, the better players in the positions. It's where you can gel all those players in to perform on the same day. Yeah. Because I, I, they won't be wanting for pride. They won't be wanting for, I think, Farrell has set up the perfect kind of storm in the sense of bringing family in and all these things. He's a, he's a wonderful coach and he'll be inspiring them. It's just when things like experience come into play or well, it's, the fact it's that... Well, it's also belief, right? Because yeah. they're going into it Do they believe they, they can get past the quarterfinal? And they've beaten everybody. Yeah, exactly. For the first time ever, That's right, I mean. going into the World Cup, that they've, yeah. they've beaten every team. So yeah. it's having that belief that if we stick to the process... That's what I mean. Logically. We'll logically. Logically. Yeah. But, like, that's the that's beauty what of I mean. sport, that's right? That's what I'm saying. Logically, you'd <laughs> say, emo- yeah. The emotion, yeah. Who knows what'll happen? That's what I mean. But anyway, yeah. listen, come here. I, I, I suppose what, yeah, I appreciate yeah. all the time. I've taken up loads of your time. I think there's some incredible yeah. uh, pieces in there that I think people will take away. And I hope, and I've, I've no doubt, my, my whole premise of this podcast was to help people, right? Mm. That was the reason I set it up in the first place. Having you on and your premise is to try to help people as well. Yeah. I mean, there are various challenges. I've no doubt that we've helped people through this conversation. I hope let people let us know and come back and, and tag or whatever. But um, well, e- you can e- be proud. Equally so, I'm very yeah. proud of this conversation. Yeah. Very no, you proud can be of proud episode, of it. And, so and, and, and I'm, I'm sure from experience, you, you, you are helping people. And just to give people something to listen to and say, hey, these guys can do it. Well, we maybe it. I can do it. Yeah. Brent Pope, thank, thank you, very you very much. Thank you very much, Pleasure. Once again, thank you for joining me on season four and taking part in this journey where we talk to people like you and me about what motivates them, what inspires them, and ultimately what makes them tick. I've learned so much from the various conversations I've had, and I hope you can take something from this that you can apply to your life. That's why this podcast has been created. I'm very proud of it, and I'm very thankful for everybody who's joined me so far. Thank you all for listening.